Welcome to Trinity Presbyterian Church Owasso Sermon Podcast. Grace changes everything. In 1939, a man named Slavomir Rowitz was a lieutenant for the Polish army. And when the Soviets came into Poland, they took his company hostage and then as prisoners. And they took Rowitz and his fellow soldiers to the farthest corners of Siberia into a death camp, a concentration camp, where they would suffer, Rowitz knew it, for the rest of his life. He was desperate. And in 1941, he and six other men decided that they're going to make a run for it. And so Slavomir Rowitz, which he writes in his book called The Long Walk, escape one day out of the Soviet concentration camp in Siberia, and they began to walk, not one mile or two miles or four miles. They walked 4,000 miles out of Siberia, across China, through the Gobi Desert, over the Himalayas, to finally get to British India, where they could be free. And Slavomir Rowitz writes in his 1956 book called The Long Walk, the story of these seven men making this incredible, excruciating journey with unattended wounds in the frigid cold temperatures, killing things along the way for meat in order to survive the long and arduous walk. When you come to the very end of the book of Nehemiah, you find that there is a spiritual walk going on in the hearts of the people of Israel, where they had just said several chapters ago in chapter 10 of Nehemiah, we, Father, will be faithful. We, Lord, will be faithful. We, O Nehemiah, we will be faithful to do three things. We will graciously and gladly give to you We will graciously and gladly set our worldview and our affections upon those things that please you by not allowing foreign ideas into our life. And therefore, we'll only marry in the one true God. We won't marry foreign women. We'll only marry fellow Israelites. And we will protect and we will honor and we will keep your Sabbath laws. It was just a few chapters ago where they had covenanted that we will keep your laws. We will marry as you've commanded us. We will protect the Sabbath as you provided for us. And we will give as you've asked of us as your stewards. And then here we read in chapter 13 of Nehemiah at the very end of the book, they already forgot those promises. Friends, one of the hardest aspects of the Christian life is that we don't recognize how long our walk is as Christians. And we speak out of both sides of our mouth. We say, yes, we're committed to you, Jesus. We love you, Jesus. We care for you, Jesus. But don't ask me to allow time to revolve around you because I'm going to work when I want to work. I'm not going to take a break because I believe that everything depends on me. And we profane his Sabbath. 
Jesus, I know you've called me to be a steward of yours. I know that you've given me all these resources to steward for your glory, but you know what? I'm not going to give a dime because my identity is wrapped up in what I own. And Jesus, listen, I know you tell me that I should have a worldview that's centered upon the finished work of Jesus. I love how Trinity talks about worldview all the time, but I'm not going to really guard my marriage. I'm going to let the porn addiction continue to fester because nobody knows about it in the secret crevices and the darkness. I'm not going to let that affair that is still hidden be revealed. And even deeper than that, the subtleties with which I have become so assimilated into the world, I like. And so do not ask, do not ask that I give that up. Friends, the walk in the Christian life is a lot longer than 4,000 miles. There are some scholars who actually um, question Slavoj Rawit's retelling of that story. There have been men, you can look in Outside Magazine, go Google it. There are men who have tried to redo that walk to see if it was humanly possible, and it is. It took them a year to do it. And they didn't walk the whole way. They had to train part of the area through the Gobi Desert. It was so hard. But it, they, they said it was possible. There are scholars who doubt that he actually did what he said he did in the 1956 book, The Long Walk. But here's what we do know. We do know that the walk that you have in your Christian life is a whole lot longer than you think. And the good news is that you don't just do it with six other men. You do it with a whole host of covenant people. Slavomil Rowitz would not have made that trek, he says in his book, without his companions. And you will not make it in the Christian life without the brothers and sisters that you see around you. Some of them are strangers to you, but you know that you are grafted in together through the work of Christ as a branch is grafted into the vine. And you are intimately connected to one to another, just like aspen groves have a root system that's intimately connected. And what you do throughout the course of the week matters. In this text, Nehemiah had been governor for 12 years over Jerusalem. And he leaves to go back to Artaxerxes, which was a common thing that the, the Assyrian king would require everybody to come back. The, the Persian king would require all of his lieutenants to come back and to check in with him on occasion. And so Nehemiah, after 12 years, makes the long four-month, thousand-mile journey from Jerusalem back to Susa in the winter palace where the king probably was. And he checks in with them, and he's there. And after a while, he says, I need to go back. I need to go back. He just had a sense. I need to go back. And when he goes back, he finds that this, the temple storehouse that they had built, this, this, giant, this giant room to store all the tithes and offerings of, God, of God's people, had been cleared out, had been cleared out by the high priest so that Tobiah, who was this Johnny-come-lately man who was jealous of Israel and always was the guy who's kind of wanting to be in the room where it happens. He's kind of like the Aaron Burr of Hamilton. He's kind of like always trying to smooth his way in. And Tobiah just wasn't in. But they had given Tobiah a place in the temple to live. And they had cleared out all of the temple tithe and the frankincense and the oil. They had moved it out so that to Tobiah could live there. And Nehemiah comes unglued when he sees it. 
When Jesus was cleansing the temple, it's easy to imagine that Jesus was thinking about Nehemiah kicking Tobiah out of the temple. Because it says that Nehemiah threw his stuff out. He threw his stuff out of the temple. And he said, bring the tithes back. Bring them back. And then later he realizes that not only have they stopped giving the tithe, but also they were selling things on Sunday. And not just a few things, that they were loading heaps of grain, verse 15, and loading them on donkeys and wine and grapes and figs and all kinds of loads, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. We just talked about this. And they'd already forgotten. And then he looks around and he goes, guys, I haven't been gone that long. And you're marrying foreign women. Now, here's the deal. It wasn't just because they were foreign. It was that they were marrying women who were turning their hearts from the one true God. It was perfectly acceptable for those who were of foreign descent to marry into Israel as long as they took upon themselves Israel's God. You think about uh, when uh, Elimelech and Naomi were married. They had two sons, Malon and Kilion. And remember, Ruth married into the family. And she was what? A Moabite. And she gladly said to Naomi after her husband died, I'm with you, and, and your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. And Nehemiah is upset because, gentlemen, just like Solomon, who was greater than you, he implies, was seduced and had his heart turned because of foreign women. So also you don't recognize how much our hearts are turned by romance, by sex, by fidelity to those who believe a different way than we do. And so if you have your, your sermon outline, the first thing that Nehemiah teaches us is that you should guard your marriage. You should guard your marriage, which is to say you should guard your worldview. You should guard your worldview. Marriage for ancient Israel was a way to protect the worldview of Israel. It was to say that we are to dedicate the whole of our life to see the world through what he says is true and beautiful and good. Notice in verses 1 to 3, he says, that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. He is not suggesting that you can't be a foreign descent and be part of the nation of Israel. What he's saying is that you shouldn't have somebody who doesn't believe in the gospel become part of the nation of Israel in the same way is true today. You know, there was uh, Jonathan Edwards' grandfather um, created this, um, this idea in ancient New England, uh, ancient New England, um, where he called it the halfway covenant. Because back then in our country, did you know that if you weren't a member of a church, you couldn't vote? You had to be baptized to vote in New England. And so Solomon Stoddard said, well, let's do the halfway covenant. Let's, let's baptize the children of unbelievers so that they can vote. And it profaned the church. And one of the hardest things Edwards had to do in his church was to reverse the course of his grandfather. It was not easy. And um, so also as a church, 
when we fence the table, as you'll see Caleb do here in just a little bit, when we fence this table, what we're doing is we're simply saying that those who come to the Lord's table are those who profess faith in Jesus. Because we want to guard our worldview. We're not trying to be protectionistic, but we are trying to be faithful to what God has called us as a people to do. So we want to guard our marriages. In ancient Israel, that was a way of guarding their worldview. And today, it's interesting how much your spouse has an influence on your spirituality. Husbands, do you know how much you are either a buoy for your wife or you are an anchor that will almost drown her? Wives, do you know how much you are either a buoy for your husband or you can be an anchor that drowns him? Brothers and sisters, it is so important that we think and talk and pray and develop the spiritual muscles to have good conversations with our spouses about our unity in Christ. And for those of you who are not yet married but long to be, oh, I pray with you even now for your spouse that they are a believer, that we marry in the Lord so that we can say that our worldview is shaped by Jesus' finished work. Jesus guards his marriage. He said, well, Jesus wasn't married. Oh, well, what does he say? He says the church is his bride. And he guards us, protects us, intercedes at the Father's right hand now for us. It says Christ rejoices over his saints as the bridegroom rejoices over his bride at all times, Jonathan Edwards says. But there are some seasons where he does more so especially guard them. The saint's conversion is like being betrothed of the intended bride to her bridegroom before they come together. But at the time of the saint's glorification, and that is when Jesus comes again, when sin is abolished, when everything is made new, then it shall be fulfilled at that time. Then those that Christ loved and gave himself for, he will sanctify them and cleanse them with the washing of water with the word, and they will be presented to him in glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing. This is your husband, the Lord Christ, O church. That is the time wherein the church shall be brought into the full enjoyment of her bridegroom, having all tears wiped away from her eyes, and there shall be no more distance or absence, no more lonely holidays. She shall then be brought to the entertainment of an eternal wedding feast to dwell with her bridegroom forever, yea, to drink eternally of his embraces. And then Christ will give her his love and she shall drink her fill. She shall swim, O church, in the oceans of his love. Christ guards his marriage because his bride is the church. So brothers and sisters, guard your marriage. It is a way to guard your worldview. But secondly, not only should you guard your marriage, but you ought to protect your Sabbath. Notice in verse 15 through 18, just like Nehemiah came after these people in the midst of uh, his return from Artaxerxes, people were treading the wine presses on the Sabbath. They were selling things on the Sabbath. They were letting foreigners like the Tyrians bring in their seafood on the Sabbath. All kinds of good things for them on the Sabbath were coming into Jerusalem. We ought to protect our 
Sabbath. The Sabbath is a creation ordinance that means that God created in the space of six days and it was all very good and he rested on the seventh day as a model for us also to rest. And the Sabbath is connected to our relationship with God. He covenanted with us to be our God and we his people. And so we are to practice Sabbath rest as we look to the one who is the true Sabbath, namely Christ. He is the one that says, come to me all who are burdened and heavy laden and I will give you what? Rest. He is the one of whom Augustine spoke, my heart is restless until I find rest in thee. Jesus was the one who said, come to me. You who have no money, Isaiah says, come buy and eat. Don't spend your labor on that which does not satisfy, but listen to me and delight yourself in the richest affair because he gives himself to us to be our true and eternal rest. And the practical reason why we practice the Sabbath, even today, is the regular rhythm of taking a break from your work and doing the opposite kind of work that you're used to doing for one day. It's not only because it's good for you, mentally and physically, all kinds of studies show that, but because it helps you direct your gaze towards your Savior, who is your ultimate rest. And it's hard, isn't it, to practice the Sabbath? But I just commend it to you as a discipline when, when I was in campus ministry, Caleb, I don't know if this is true for you at TU, if you've seen this in students, but when I was at, in campus ministry in New Jersey with a group of students who said, we are for this year, we are going to not study on Sunday. And so they tried this little experiment and they didn't study on a Sunday. And after that year, looking back, they said that was the best year at Princeton I ever had. And it caught on. And so in our little fellowship, the, the students, they didn't have to, but a lot of them, led by the seniors, they would take Sundays off. They wouldn't study on Sunday. They would try to rest because they were type A driven kids who had never rested in their entire life. So they were catching up on rest that they had lost since kindergarten. And I wonder what rest looks like for you. Do you protect your Sabbath? And thirdly, you are to steward your storehouse. That is your income, your earnings, etc. You are to steward them. I know that your paycheck has your name on it, but it's not yours. I know that inheritance has your name on it, but it's not yours. I know those stock options have your name on it, but they're not yours. They are the Lord's. And he has given them to you to steward for his glory's sake. This time of year, we are going to spend, on average, six hours a week shopping or on our phones, especially as Cyber Monday approaches. You compare that with the fact that we only spend 40 minutes a week with our children. Mm, where's our heart? Unadulterated folk time with our kids. 40 minutes for the average mom and dad. Six hours shopping on their phone. 
Martin Luther said, I have held many things in my hands and I have lost them all, but whatever I had placed in God's hands, that I have never lost. Randy Alcorn says that tithing isn't a ceiling of our giving, it's the floor. It's not the finish line of giving, it's the starting block. Tithes can launch us into the mindset and the habits of grace-filled living. For some of you, you've told me your story in the Rise campaign that you didn't, you didn't necessarily feel like you wanted to make a big investment, but when you did, you were shocked at how your behavior in giving actually shaped your mind and your disposition toward the Lord. Because you handed back to Him what is His. And one of the marks of us as a, a new covenant people is that we are people who are radically generous because it's all His. And we want to give to those in need. And it is the Lord's way of saying, you know, one of the things that has most hurt you in your spiritual walk, it is your secret idolatry of your bank accounts. And this is especially true in Tulsa, Oklahoma. We've moved here because it's cheaper to live here. And oh, how subtly Satan allows us to think, oh, there's more in the bank account than there was when I lived elsewhere. And then subtly he begins to help you think that it's yours and that you deserve it, you earned it, you shouldn't give it. But the Holy Spirit says, all of it is mine to be give, given joyfully. And that doesn't mean that you have to give whenever you feel joy. It means that in your giving, sometimes that's how you experience joy. And here in God's Word, listen, it is no secret that Nehemiah comes after God's people because they have withheld the tithe, and they have filled the room that is supposed to store their tithes with Tobiah's stuff. And so often, so many areas of my life and Lauren's in my life, we have filled what should have been filled with our joyful, generous, and regular tithe of the Lord with stuff. How about you? So, friends, we are to guard our marriage, we are to protect our Sabbath, and we are to steward our storehouses. Eugene Peterson writes in a long obedience in the same direction, that we can decide to live in response to the abundance of God's grace and not under the dictatorship of our own poor needs. But it is our decision to make, and which will it be? This holiday season as we prepare for Advent, would you allow yourself to say to the Lord Jesus, Jesus, I'm a member of your church, your true bride. You are my true husband, my true spouse. Whatever you ask of me, I will do. Would you strive to protect your Sabbath because Jesus is the true Sabbath who has come for you. He has provided rest he worked so that you would not be condemned by your works, but might be saved by his grace and rest in his finished work. And Jesus didn't just tithe the 10%. Jesus gave his whole life for you so that you might receive the riches of his eternal presence and grace. 
the last couple of weeks to our staff and to our elders and our deacons, I've, I've read this quote from Richard Lovelace. And uh, Richard Lovelace wrote this back in the late 70s. And he was a gospel-centered writer before the term gospel-centered was in vogue. And this is what he writes. And I commend it to you as a motivation for how and why we are to live holy lives to the Lord. Loveless writes, only a fraction of the present body of professing Christians are solidly appropriating the justifying work of Christ in their lives. In their day-to-day existence, they rely on their sanctification, their behavior, their holiness as the basis of their justification. And few know enough to start each day with a thoroughgoing stand upon Luther's platform that you are accepted in Christ, looking outward in faith and claiming the holy alien righteousness of Christ as the only grounds for acceptance, relaxing in that quality of trust which will produce increasing sanctification as faith is active in love and in gratitude. In other words, what is he saying? He is saying that you are justified by faith, O Christian. You are accepted. You don't have to do anything to please your heavenly Father. And so all that he asks of us, because we understand the power of our justification, we gladly say to him, whatever you ask, I will rest in you because you've done the work. I will joyfully give to you because you are my treasure. And I will joyfully guard my worldview because you Lord Christ, are the way, the truth, and the life. And in Nehemiah, it is a long road, not just from Babylon to Jerusalem, but in the Christian life. And we are called to walk that road together, sustained by his sacraments, fueled by worship together, the one true God. And we do that together as people who are marked holy unto him. And if you have your bulletin, I want you to look at the front cover of your bulletin. And on that front cover, there is an image that's been there for the last several weeks. It's hard for me to describe now, but one day you'll see it in full whenever we're in the building. But on the 12 trusses that are around uh, upholding that ceiling up, There will be 12 acts or 12 movements of God's story throughout Scripture. And the last act of the Old Testament, which if you're looking at me, will be the one that's right over there. The Old Testament will be behind you and the New Testament will be in front of you if you're looking in the building toward the pulpit. And this image is what is going to be carved on that truss laterally. It's the image of a restored Jerusalem as a picture, as a reminder to us of the journey that Ezra and Nehemiah took and the place where they stand in redemptive history and to remind you that it is a long walk and our hearts are fickle and we claim solidarity and faith in Jesus, but it is by renewed faith and and repentance, faith and repentance, the two pedals of the bicycle by which we progress in the Christian life. And all of our giving and all of our Sabbath resting and all of our fidelity to our marriages and guarding our worldviews, all of that is fruit that overflows from a justified heart that is glad in Christ. And so, O church, 
may we, like Nehemiah, be able to walk in holiness, guarding our marriage, protecting our Sabbath, and stewarding our storehouses for his glory and for our joy. And as you prepare to come to the table this morning, would you come with all that you are? I will do whatever you've called me to do and be by your word. As we prepare for the table, would you join me in prayer?